How's everybody tonight? Good. Life of Solomon. So I invite you to open up to First Kings. We're going to be in First Kings chapter ten tonight. As uh, as we look for what the Lord has for us, and as we've been going through one of the uh, one of the things that we want to remember as we take a look at the life of Solomon. Here we've we've seen the the life of David before him. David, known as a man after God's own heart, and one of the things that uh, really typified who David was is he had a singular heart meaning that the Lord was the the main thing in his life doesn't mean he was perfect but the Lord was it he was there to serve the Lord we don't see David divided we don't see David's heart split between other gods we don't see David's heart split between other things we see David mess up but the Lord was his main stay the main stay in his life Then we have his son Solomon come on the scene. And as we look at the life of Solomon, one of the things that we recognize in his life as a young man having an opportunity to be given a blank check by God. God saying to him, hey, what would you have? I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom to lead God's people. And so the Lord said, because you didn't ask for riches, because you didn't ask for peace that your enemy would uh, would basically be uh, your footstool that you would have victory over all your enemies. I'm going to give you all of that too. Because your desire was to be a, a wise and good leader for God's people. And so we see Solomon fulfill the call of David. David's desire, remember, was to build God a house, a temple. And Solomon fulfills that. He spends 20 years building the temple of God, his palace... A variety of stables and garrisons around the kingdom of Israel. And he's, he's very focused in this time of building. And then he comes to the end of the building. And during that time of building, we see him making some errors, small steps that begin to set him up for what we'll see in chapter 11 is a divided heart. And what he begins to do is three very specific things that God told the kings of Israel not to do. The first he told them not to do is not to multiply horses. The symbol of your military might in that day was how many horses you had. How many chariots do you have? How big a cavalry is in your army? Because that was quite the advantage in those days. So multiplying horses was a, was a hazard because the king would begin to trust in the power of his military rather than in God. Now, have we seen God deliver through many or few? There was one time, as we studied the life of David, that we saw the Lord deliver the entire Philistine army into the hands of Jonathan and his armor bearer. No horses. So the key is to keep yourself in a place where your trust is in him. What does that say for you and I? As our desire is to be men and women of a singular heart, a focused heart, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord says His desire for us is to love Him with all our heart, right? That's a unified heart. Everybody with me? It's not a divided heart. It doesn't mean we add God to our life. It means that God becomes our life. He has the whole heart. Jesus said, if you you love a husband or wife or children more than 
than me, you're not fit for the kingdom. What was his point? You have a divided heart. There's only room in your heart for one. And so he wants to be that one. The love of the Lord your God with all your heart. Singular heart, singular purpose. So as we look at this, the first, the first pitfall. Building a mighty Calvary. Solomon's stables are all around the nation of Israel. If you go to Israel today and tour, you'll have opportunity to tour many, many cities that were stable houses to hold his horses. The second thing that the Lord said is not to multiply gold for yourself. And we, the Lord made a promise to Solomon. You remember the Lord said, because you didn't ask for riches, I'm going to give it to you. So you don't have to strive for it. You don't have to look for it. And one of the things we'll see tonight as we study the scripture is that they didn't even value silver. There was so much gold in the land, it was like, um, no, keep the silver. We just want the gold. They're going to stop counting it. Why does the Lord say to the kings, don't multiply gold for yourself? Because exactly the same pitfall as the, the, the horses, where's your trust? I put my faith in the gold. If I have a pile of gold and there's a problem, let's say the enemies are riding an army down against me and I have a pile of gold, I'd be tempted to take that gold, call a neighbor, say Egypt, and say, hey Egypt, why don't you join with me? I got some gold here, I'll, I'll, I'll buy some, uh, some of, of your ability to ride with us and you and I will take on these guys. Now I have left the Lord out of the plans because I have gold. You think about these things, these are two areas, especially in our lives as American citizens, that we struggle with. I don't care how poor you are in America, you are wealthier than, than the majority of the world. If you don't have anything, if you have a, a roof over your head when you sleep and not a dirt floor, you're doing better than a lot of people. Any kind of heat, you're doing better than a lot of people. And the concept being when we have money, when we have wealth, we think about our lives. Isn't it easier for us to trust in our checking account to solve a problem? Well, I need, uh, I need to pay my rent. Well, I got the money. No sweat. But I think God would rather we lived in a place that we have to rely on Him. I think it's good to rely on the Lord. When we get sick, what do we do? Go to the doctor. We got health insurance. We got uh, money to, to pay for it. If I don't have any milk, I go down to the store and buy it. I have been places in the world where if you don't have milk, it's a big problem. And the nearest store is a 45-minute walk. There are no cars, and there's no doctor within two hours. So when people get sick, what do you have to do? What the Bible said. You bring people together, you anoint them with oil, and you pray over them. What do you do when, what do you do when, when you're in need and you don't have the things to supply your needs? You call on the name of the Lord. And that's where God wants us to, to live. That's where He wants us to exist, in that place of reliance on Him. Why? Because when we're reliant upon the Lord, it focuses our heart. Right? The Lord wants that undivided heart to love the Lord with all our heart. Jesus said this. Lay up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. Why? Because where your heart is, yeah, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. The Lord wants us to treasure that relationship with Him. If we have to rely on Him, 
it causes us to treasure him. So it again leads us to an undivided heart. The, the scriptures would declare that our desire is to live in a place where we have our daily bread. Maybe we don't have everything laid up for the future. But we're not stuck in so much poverty that we might be tempted to steal. But that God gives us what we need. Not necessarily what we want. But that he gives us what we need. But Solomon found him in a place, himself in a place where he had everything. He had the might of the army and peace. No wars during Solomon's reign. He, he's living in relative peace. He's got all the gold he could imagine. We're going to see billions upon billions of dollars by today's standards is what he had. Uh, several tons of gold, which is a lot of gold. And uh, it, it was uh, something that he used for his flooring. When's the last time you were thinking, you know, the house, I'm thinking about changing the carpet, maybe putting some tile. I think I'll use gold. I think I'll just put gold in there. But that's but here's another thing. Here Solomon we're going to see tonight. Solomon is he's he's building the shields for his army. I'm going to make some shields. I think I'll make them out of gold. Wow. That's kind of crazy. That's like saying there's so much gold, you know? I think we'll start making our tanks out of gold. That might not be such a good idea. But the concept we see he has all these Riches. There's a third thing that the Lord told him not to do. The Lord said, do not multiply wives for yourself. We talked about this last time. How is it that they would make peace? That they would have treaties? Well, they would do it the way that they did it in the Middle East. How is that? You would take a wife. We've already seen it in Solomon's life. He took uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And so there's peace between them and Egypt. We're going to see him do that. 700 more times we're going to see him have 300 concubines or or in in essence a wife without any rights uh and so a total of a thousand now paul said in the scriptures it is it is good for men not to touch a woman and paul's argument that he makes in in first corinthians chapter 7 is that a single man or single woman is able to serve God easier with an undivided heart. Because if you're married, you are, the Bible tells you, if you're married, you're to care about the needs of your spouse, your wife or your husband. But if you're not, then, then you don't have those worries. So imagine if just having a single wife or a husband, you know, gives us, not that it's necessarily bad, but that it, it gives that opportunity to have a focus in another place. What happens with a thousand? Just, just a bad idea. Just, just a bad idea. So, these three things, little by little, Solomon introduced into his life. He found himself in a very wealthy place where he could trust in his riches. He found himself in a very powerful place where he could trust in the, his own power. We'll see that. And he finds himself in a place where he multiplies wives for himself. So this is the danger. This is the path that leads to a divided heart. When Jesus told the parable of the sower, 
we remember? One of the, the times the seed falls on ground that is choked out by thorns. And you remember what the thorns were? The cares of this world. The cares of this world choke out the fruitfulness of the seed. And that's exactly what you see happening in the life of Solomon. The things he had starts to choke out the fruitfulness of the truth of God in his life. And it's going to take him from a place where God promised to give him an undivided kingdom. If he would walk in obedience, we've read those scriptures. But he's going to find himself tonight in a place where God says, I told you to do this, and you didn't do it. So the kingdom is going to be divided. So we pick it up in chapter 10. Chapter 10 gives us the sort of the peak, and it shows us some of those things happening in Solomon's life. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Queen of Sheba heard of his fame and the name. So she hears about the fame of Solomon, but not only that, she hears the name, the, the name of God, the covenantial name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, capital L-O-R-D, we see here in the scripture. So she's, she's heard of the name of, of the Lord and the wisdom of Solomon. So she comes to test him with hard questions. That phrase, hard questions, is, is riddles, problems. I don't know how this works. I don't know how this works. We have those questions still today. The same questions that the Queen of Sheba was asking, people still ask today. How do we reconcile evil in a world with an all-powerful God? Those are the same, I, I guarantee you, the, Solomon would say to you and I, there's nothing new under the sun. The same questions, the same struggles, the same things that people dealt with, they were dealing with here. So Queen of Sheba, she's saying, man, I, I want to come see if this is all true. Verse 2, so she came to Jerusalem with a, a very great retinue with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart, all the questions that she had. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. Well, what is that? That's the wisdom of God. That was a gift that God had given unto Solomon. He was able here to deal with her questions, to answer her questions, but he was blinded to his own mistakes. To the, to the, to the things that were taking him off track. It says in verse 4, When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of all the waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She sees all these things, the, the wealth that he has, the palace. The house she's talking about is his, his palace. Remember, he spent twice as much time on his house as he did on the house of the Lord. So it was lavish, and it had the same gold. In fact, we'll see in a moment, he had a throne of ivory that he covered with gold. Now think about it. Usually when you build something that you cover with gold, you use wood or something less precious, not ivory. Take ivory and then, and then cover that ivory with gold to make a golden 
uh, uh, throne. But that's the way it was with Solomon. And she sees all this. Not only that, she sees the way that he goes up to the temple and she watches how he worships. So here we see Solomon coming before the Lord. Solomon worshiping and she's watching. And she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are those of your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. And blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity and precious stone. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So she gives this incredible gift to Solomon. And we know, in essence, she's saved. How do we know she's saved? When Matthew, Jesus said, the queen of Sheba will rise in judgment against this nation. For she came and saw the wisdom of Solomon and trusted. And a greater than Solomon is here. And the people that were rejecting the witness of Jesus Christ in their midst. And Jesus says that the queen of Sheba would sit in judgment over that nation. So we know that she comes to know Most High God as an example of this kingdom. Which is a, an example of... And one of the very few examples of the nation of Israel fulfilling the being the light to the Gentile world, to the world out there and saying, here, look at our God. Look at what our God is able to do. Look at what God has done in our life. Listen to the wisdom of God. See the hand of God. And this is one of the few times that we see that occurring. And she does it by coming and seeing, looking at the wisdom, hearing the wisdom of Solomon, seeing the blessings of God, the peace of God upon the kingdom and so she comes to faith. Now, in verse 11, he goes on. It says, Also, the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almagwood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almagwood for the house of the Lord and the king's house. Also, he made harps and stringed instruments for singers. And there never came uh, such almagwood nor has there been the like seen to this day. So in the gift here coming from Hiram is uh, this precious wood that he utilizes to make steps. He makes, he makes lyres and cymbals, uh, things to, to worship the Lord on. But here's one of the struggles for Solomon. Solomon's key focus in his life was to build the temple. And when that's accomplished, he doesn't have any more vision. What do I do now? guess I'll get another wife, count my gold, get a few more horses. He, he didn't have, the scripture tells us, without vision, my people perish. I built the temple, the temple's done. I, I don't know, you know, what else I'm supposed to do. We see a few things here in the gifts that people gave that Solomon uh, utilized, but, but not necessarily uh, going further, seeing what else that the Lord had for him. Now, King Solomon 
gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked. Beside what Solomon had given her, according to the royal generosity, uh, so she turned and went to her, her own country uh, and her servants. And the weight of the gold that came to Solomon a year was 666 talents of gold. Is that interesting to you? And his number will be man's number, the number of the beast. What's the number of the beast? 666. Here, Solomon is, is receiving 666 talents of gold a year. Some estimates put that at a billion dollars a year. Our price that's coming to Solomon. He's going to reign for somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 years. That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of gold. 666. Besides that, from the traveling merchants and from the income of traders and the kings of Arabia and from the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. That's a lot of gold. I don't particularly want to be the fellow who's got to carry a golden shield. I, uh, beside being heavy, you are an instant target. Hey, that guy's walking around with like a million dollar shield. Let's go get him. But these things are things he kept in what was called the forest of Lebanon. You remember that one building in his palace that was huge, three stories tall, had all these pillars. And upon each one of these pillars, he mounted, it was basically his armory. And on each of those pillars, he would mount one of these golden shields. So he makes these golden shields. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. That means you don't see the ivory. You see the opulence of the kingdom, the wealth. So much they had. The throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this has been made for any other kingdom. The, the wealth, all carved out of ivory and overlaid with gold. The wealth of, of King Solomon. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. You know how you and I use those little red solo cups? No, that wasn't Solomon. It, he didn't use plastic either. He had gold. Hey, if he wanted a monster, he got his monster in a gold cup. It was all the drinking vessels were gold. All the vessels for the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not, listen to this, not one was silver, for this was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Silver had no value in Solomon's kingdom, because there was so much gold. It's amazing, it's unreal, the, the wealth that they had. For the king had merchant ships at sea with a fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, 
and monkeys. Interesting. Interesting. The, the gifts that Solomon had. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses and mules, at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. So remember we talked about not multiplying horses. And here, this is exactly how the enemy works. How, how did many of the horses he came by come to him? As gifts of people coming to Solomon asking him about his wisdom. And they give him horses. Well, it's a gift. Well, i got to take it if it's a gift. Somebody give it to me. So he builds this mighty force as a result. The chariots and the 12,000 horsemen. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Now, maybe you haven't been in Jerusalem. So in case you haven't, let me explain to you what that means. If you go to Jerusalem today, they will tell you a story. They will say that at the creation of the world, God put two angels in charge of all the stones. And those two angels were responsible to spread the stones around the world. One angel was diligent, and the other was lazy. The diligent angel took his half of the stones, and he spread them around the world. The lazy angel dumped them all in Israel. There is no shortage of stone in Israel. The primary building material that we see in our world is wood. The primary building material in Israel is stone. They cut stone. That's how they built the, the temple. That's how they build their buildings. Still today, you'll see their buildings made of stone. The scripture says that silver was as common as stones. To walk around Israel, I mean, you would just stone lay everywhere. Every place. There's nothing that is not covered with stones and rocks. And so he's saying there was so much wealth. It was like the stones of Israel, everywhere, just uh, counted as little value, laying on the side of the road. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. So there's this forestation that takes place, and the cedar trees, remember, he was using in building his, his palace in the buildings that he that he constructed. So we see him bringing in cypress, which came from other places. And there was more of that than the natural trees that grew in Israel and in Jerusalem. Also, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt. Oops. Well, he had a bunch of gifts at one time, but now he's actually going out after them, right? Solomon had horses imported from Egypt in Kiva. The king's merchants bought them in Kiva at the current price now a chariot that was imported from egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150 and thus through their agents they exported them to all the kings of the hittites and the kings of syria so now he uses some of the horses that he has acquired 
in his stables as a, a way of multiplying gold. So he multiplied horses, and then now he's selling the horses and multiplying gold. He's able to do both at the same time. To disobey God in, in two different respects. Not because God doesn't want him to have nice things, not because God doesn't, but God wants him to be able to live a life like his father, David, who was called a man after God's own heart, whose, whose purpose, the centrality of David's life was the Lord. For the nation of Israel, we look at their history. The best time in the nation of Israel's history was before they had the land. The best time in the nation of Israel's history is when they were leaving Egypt and preparing to come to the promised land. And when they did, what traveled in the middle of their camp? In the middle of their camp, what traveled with them was the tabernacle, which was the presence of God. And wherever they set up camp, they set up the tabernacle first, and then they surrounded the tabernacle with the encampment that would go around it. Many people believe that the way they camped around, if you were to take a bird's eye view, you would be looking at the symbol of a cross the way that people camped around the tabernacle. But the point of it is, God was central. He was the midst of everything. How did they know where to go? The, the cloud that was over them began to move. If you're standing in the desert, and it's 125 degrees, and the only shade is the cloud or the Shekinah of God, which is over you, when it moves, what do you do? You move. And it keeps moving, you keep moving. So the Lord would lead His people by the cloud. They would follow that cloud. At night, the scripture tells, they had a pillar of fire. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The idea being, here's the light. When the light moves at night, where do we go? We, we want to draw closer to the light. Why? Warmth and we can see. So this is how God leads His people. He's central. He's central to where they're going, what they're doing, how they worship, how they live. They live around him. That was David. That was David's heart. Solomon, because of the cares of this world, because of the things that he acquired, the blessings that God gave him, his heart becomes divided. We, and in, in arguably the greatest nation on earth, at least currently... One of the wealthiest, certainly, are in danger of the same thing. That the stuff that we have begins to turn our heart from the centrality of Christ, from being focused on Him. Now look at verse chapter 11, verse 1. It says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Listen to the God, God's warning. Why? Surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. So Solomon, in adding wives, wasn't just Egypt, these big nations, but he's got peace with the Hittites, who had been a traditional enemy of God's people and whom God said I don't want you to make peace with them and certainly don't marry them. The same with the Moabites and the Ammonites, traditional enemies of God's people that God said I don't want you to intermarry with them. I'd rather have you push their influence out of your life so that you're not influenced by them. 
These are the people, the women, whom Solomon brought into his life, loving many foreign women. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Listen to this phrase. And his wives turned away his heart. So, here we come, the end of Solomon's, coming toward the end of Solomon's reign. We find Solomon in a place where he's, he's done things that God had told him not to do. And now, as a result of these things, we see his heart being turned from the Lord. His heart being turned from the Lord. Well, <coughs> it reminds me of a guy we studied in the book of Judges. You remember his name is Samson. Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth, right? Everybody remember? He's a Nazarite from birth. The one thing that we can always remember that Samson wasn't supposed to do was cut his hair, right? He was also, as a Nazarite, required to touch no dead thing, nor ever drink of the fruit of the vine. No wine. Ever. And where, what do we see Samson doing? Early in his life, we see Samson touching the dead. We see Samson getting drunk. It was the third thing that we remember when he cut his hair and his strength left him because the presence of God was no longer with him. The same way in Solomon's life. It's the third thing. We see him in disobedience with horses. We see him in disobedience with gold. But it's the wives that we remember that turn his heart from the Lord. They create in Solomon a divided heart. A divided heart because each of his wives come to him and say, let me introduce you to this God. Let me introduce you to this God. Let me introduce you to this God. And, and that began to change his heart and what he was about. Verse 4 says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Here are the gods that Solomon went after. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. So we come now to a life, Solomon becomes such a great picture of someone who started well, but doesn't end well. And the challenge for all of us is to have that desire to not only begin well, but to finish well. And in order to finish well, then we've got to hold fast to what God is, is calling of us. How is the Lord directing us? What, what is God in, instructing us with? And there are times in my life where I'm reminded that the Scripture calls me to cast aside every weight and that sin which so easily ensnares. There are times in my life where God will speak to my heart and say, Jackie, you need to cut that out. And you and I, if we were to talk about what that is, we would say, well, it's a big deal. Well, the big deal is God said, knock it off. It's not always a sin. Sometimes it's just something you do that is robbing of your time so that you don't have the time that is necessary for the Lord. 
Um, if, if I'm going to have a heart undivided and focused upon the Lord, then I should at least walk as Jesus walked. Isn't that what John wrote in his epistles? If you say that you walk after Jesus, that you follow the Lord, then you ought to walk as he walked. What's the example that he lays out for us? Every morning, Jesus, the Son of God, would spend time with his Father in prayer, receiving the marching orders for the day, focusing uh, on what it was that God had for him that day. So Jesus could say, I only speak the things that my Father gives me to speak. I only do the things that my Father gives me to do. I can't go helter-skelter through my day and expect the same thing to happen. If I'm not spending time with them. But if every morning the, the primary concern in my life is something that is stopping me from being able to make that meeting, then God would say to my heart, Jackie, that's a weight. You can still be a believer and you can still follow me, but you're impeded. Your progress is impeded. And this you need to cut out of your life. And I will stay stagnant in the place I'm at until I'm either obedient to cast off that weight. I will not move forward. I've seen that happen in my life time and time again. Where God has called me to some things. It's been uh, what I watch, what I listen to, what I read, things that I'm doing, priorities in my life. They're not sin, they're weights. And God says, if you want to move forward, then you need to move forward in obedience. And if I don't, then I'm going to stagnate. I'm going to stay in a place where I'm not progressing. If I want to live a life of undivided heart, it is going to cost me something. Do you understand that? David, when he had opportunity to purchase the land upon which Solomon built the temple... The owner of that land said to David, you can have it. And David said, then it wouldn't be a sacrifice. It is not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost me anything. What does the scripture call us? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you what? Present your bodies, how? A living sacrifice. Was that going to cost you something? It is. It is going to cost. There is a price for following Jesus, for being his disciple, to grow, to move forward. There is a cost. There's, there are requirements. There are things in the work of sanctification that God wants to do in your life. As he, as the, as the potter, cleans the garbage out of the pot. And makes you into that vessel of honor that God wants you to be. Well, <coughs> that was something that Solomon didn't overcome. And little by little by little, his heart became duller and duller and duller until he's worshiping Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a, a false pagan god that would be worshipped by by the Canaanite people around the children of Israel, and the worship of Ashtoreth involved sexual intercourse with priests slash priestesses. And the resulting occasional pregnancy would then be offered on the uh, altar of Molech, or Milkon. 
And Solomon is caught up in it. The wisest man ever. So, do we think our odds are better? (laughs) You know, because Solomon, he just had something against him. He, He was wise and he stumbled and fell. Aren't we capable of the same thing? The Lord declares to us, Come out from among them and be ye holy. Separate. To separate ourselves from the world and separate ourselves unto God. Jesus was asked in his ministry, you remember they came to him and they said, Is it lawful for us to pay taxes? You remember? You remember his response? People always remember the first part. Render unto Caesar. Uh, I mean, Caesar. Who's Caesar? <laughs> Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. What was the second part? Render unto God the things that are God's. Are we fulfilling that? To give God what's His. The things that belong to Him. And primarily, that thing being your heart. Not a part of your heart. Not a closet in your heart. Not one room. But your heart. Your whole heart. An undivided heart. So we see Solomon in this place of stumbling and falling and worshiping Ashtoreth and worshiping after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. It's, because it's called an abomination because later on we get to the prophets, the Lord's going to say, you people are sacrificing your children. And the thought of that has never even entered my mind. Why would you do that? And we think, so barbaric. We do it much cleaner today. You don't even have to see any of that. We murder them in the, in the temple of the womb and pretend that it's less. But that is exactly where Solomon found himself. The wisest guy ever. All the promise in the world, right? I mean, he could have... He not only was he the greatest king, he could have been the greatest example. I mean, think of all the books he wrote that we read. I mean, how many of us have read a proverb a day? There's 31 proverbs. You can read a proverb a day written by the wisest man ever who found himself toward the end of his life living in idolatry. Worshipping the gods of sex and power. No different than the struggles that we have today. He finds himself in that place. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David. Verse 7, And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Now Ammon and the Ammonites are the same. So, he's not only worshiping. You know what it means to build a high place. In the Greek, the word is Acropolis. You know what they put on the Acropolis in, in Greek cities? That's where the temples went. What is the Acropolis? It's the highest place in the town. He built the high places. He's building temples. Temples to false gods. He's building temples of worship to gods other than 
Yahweh, other than Jehovah, other than the God of the Israelites. What is that? It's a divided heart. It's, Solomon hasn't left God. He's giving God a part of the heart. And the other part of his heart, he's giving to all these other gods. To all these other things in his life. We call that a divided heart. And Solomon, in dedication to the temple, said, The time is going to come when we are going to find ourselves in sin with a divided heart. And when we call out to you, Lord, hear and heal. Well, Chronicles puts it like this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. The idea, the same. When we find that place. This is where Solomon finds himself right now. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. So he built the, all his wives. How many wives? 700 and 300 concubines. He built them all the temples of the gods that they worshipped. Wow. It's becoming a crowded city, isn't it? And certainly becoming a crowded heart. Choking out the fruitfulness of God in his life. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. And I, as we look at that, I, I, and I'm, I'm hoping that, that we can kind of grasp that concept. The Bible says, if we love God, we will what keep his commandments. And it's important that we understand the language of that word, keep. It is not only a word of performance that we do. It is a word that speaks to valuing, to treasure, to care for, that we keep. That the word matters to us. The struggle in Solomon's life was he reached a point where the word of God, that the fact that God had appeared to him twice and talked to him twice and given him the wisdom that he has, he didn't value that anymore. His heart was after pleasure. His heart was after what he could, what made him feel good, what made him happy, or what at least what he thought was making him happy. And so the Lord, he finds himself in opposition to what God wants to do in his life. So in verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, another conversation, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. The promise that God gave was, If you will follow me, there will never cease to be a king on the throne of David. They're not following him. That promise lasted one generation. From David to Solomon. Solomon's child. You have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And we're going to see the division of the kingdom. To the northern kingdom called Israel. And the southern kingdom called Judah. And they will stay divided until after the Babylonian captivity. It's a long time. Close to 400 years, they'll be divided. And it all started because the heart of the king became divided. So the Lord says, this kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to a servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days. 
For the sake of your father David, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So God's saying to Solomon, hey, you're, you're out of whack, you're off track here. I'm not going to wipe you out. But when your son comes to rule, the kingdom is going to be taken, he's going to be divided. Uh, and then he says in verse 13, I will not... I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. What's the one tribe? Judah. Judah. And ultimately, there, there, there will be two. Here, here's the misnomer that occurs in this concept. And we talked about it a little bit as we studied the prophets on Sunday night. And that is that the... The ten tribes all went north, and the, and the two tribes, uh, uh, Benjamin and Judah, all went south. Well, that's not necessarily true. The, what the Bible tells us occurred is in Judah, which is a symbol of where Messiah, Mashiach, is going to come from Judah, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's who Jesus Christ is, and that's the promise. That tribe, in essence, is filled with those who still want to follow the Lord. And the ten northern tribes, they don't even worship in Jerusalem anymore. They put up two golden calves. The golden calves, everybody remember the golden calves? They put two golden calves up in Dan, and Dan becomes the center of worship for them because they don't want their people to go south into Judah to worship. They might decide to stay there, and then our kingdom is going to fall apart. So... The northern kingdom goes into idolatry, and that's why in the northern kingdom you never have a good king. All evil kings. The southern kingdom is going to kind of go up and down. Good king, bad king. But the people in the southern kingdom are going to be those who want to follow the Lord. In each kingdom, though one's called the northern and the ten tribes, and one's called the southern, and the two you have representatives of all the tribes. Whoever wanted to follow the Lord went south. There were some in Judah that went north. There were some in the tribes up north that came south. Because they wanted to worship the Lord. There's not, the point being, there's not ten lost tribes. God knows where they all are. In fact, the ten northern kingdoms who went and were taken in about 150 years before the southern kingdom, they go into captivity to Assyria. So the ten northern kingdoms go into captivity in Assyria... 150 years later, who conquers Assyria? Babylon. And where's Babylon take them all? To Babylon. So where did the ten tribes go? From Assyria to where? To Babylon. Where the other two were. And we have the unification again of the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is the, the beginning of what we see taking place in that. So he tells them there's going to be a split kingdom. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. <coughs> For it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom, that Hadad had fled into Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. So Hadad was still a little child. And they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion, food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave 
him as wife, the sister of his own wife, that is, the queen, uh, the sister of Queen Taphanes. Then the sister of Taphanes bore him Genubath, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So you have an enemy coming up against Solomon. Where? In Egypt. Well, that was the first wife so he could have peace. How'd that work? See, the Middle Eastern culture was to marry and marry and marry within those other multiple families so you'll have peace. How's that work in your life? Is there always peace in your family? Maybe your family <coughs> is better than mine. But there's not always peace in my family. Me and my brothers did not always get along. Still don't always get along. Being in the family is not a guarantee of peace. How many times have we seen brother against brother? We had a little thing in the United States called the Civil War. What was that? That's right. That's right. So there's not ever a guarantee because you're kin that you're not going to go to war. Here we see the very first treaty that Solomon had made is now becoming the, the festering pool for the enemy who's going to come against him. Who's going to, who, who the Lord is, is raising up. So, when Ben-Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. So Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go out on your own country? So he answered nothing, but let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezom, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So we have two antagonists against Solomon. Why did the Lord raise up antagonists? These guys are are not really going to raise all that much of a ruckus against Solomon, but the point was, God promised, if you walk with me, you'll have peace. You're starting to have struggle. You're starting to have difficulty. You're starting to have these challenges in your life. What is God saying to Solomon? Look to me. You're off track. God loves Solomon. The Bible says that God, Solomon was much beloved of God from the time he was born. God loved him. God wants to see him do well. God wants to see him turn. So what does he do? He, he, he orchestrates things in Solomon's life to try to put Solomon's eyes back on the Lord. To try to say, Solomon, here I am. Solomon here. What did he tell the nation of Israel he would do? He put them in a land that, that requires the rain for crops to grow. And he said, I will withhold the rain if you are being disobedient. So when the rain was withheld, what the children of Israel should have done is turned to the Lord and said, Lord, where are, are, have we sinned? Forgive us. Help us to walk where you want us to walk and be who you want us to be. What did they tend to do instead? To call on a God called Baal, who is the God of the storm. The Canaanite God of rain. If it wasn't raining, if God wasn't bringing the rain, they would turn to another God and pray to him. Not that the rain would come as a result, but God usually would get a little more angry about the direction in which they were moving. Because they weren't seeking the Lord. When we face struggles in our life, uh, adversaries, issues, things arise, we have two possibilities that we can always do 
we can all either use it as an opportunity to draw near to the Lord, or we can use it as an excuse to, to push ourselves away. Every time. We can draw near, or we can push away. People that have a heart undivided, like David, whenever those hard times arose, what do we see David doing? Wow, he's reaching out with two hands to grab a hold of the Lord. He's drawing near to him. He's falling on his face and saying, forgive me, I've sinned. He's saying, Lord, help me, be with me, strengthen me, give me victory over these adversaries that were a result of the, the sin in his own life. But he was drawing to the Lord. He was brought tighter, closer. What do you have in Solomon's life? A little book called Ecclesiastes. Ever read it? Yeah, you should look through it. Everything in life is a waste. I thought I would find satisfaction in women, so I took them all. And I wasn't satisfied. It was empty. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's one of the favorite phrases of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. The challenge to us, when those things happen, when people wrong you, when your life goes sideways, when it doesn't all come together like you want it to come together, keep in your mind, you have two choices, to run from God or run to Him. And what are you going to do? To cling to the Lord? Or say, forget you, you're not... You're not making things better. Keep in mind whose example you're following. He who ran to the Lord was called the man after God's own heart. He that ran away was called the king of the divided heart, which led to the divided kingdom. And it'll do the same in your life. It'll lead to a divided heart, a heart that's broken, that's not whole, that's not healed, that is unsatisfied with your relationship with God, is unsatisfied with your relationship with people, that ultimately is unsatisfied with everything. And it can only be made whole in a right relationship with God. That's what God does, right? He makes us complete. Do we have to draw near to Him? We want to go toward Him, but that's not the choice necessarily, at least at this point, that Solomon's making. The scripture goes on to tell us then, uh, and this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, these are going to be the two kings. Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Silonite met him on the way, and he had clothed himself in a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me. Worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, 
and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments as his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. Every time we look at that word keep or kept, you can say treasured, valued. They were important to him. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself. <coughs> Excuse me to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you, and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to, to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. And we come to the end of one who had so much promise. And the scripture will not tell you whether or not Solomon came back. Whether or not Solomon repented. And I think there's a reason. Because God wants us to be able to see ourselves in the story. What are you going to do? <coughs> will you repent? Will you draw near? Or will you continue to, to um, run in the opposite direction? You think about all that Solomon did, you know... In your Bible, there are three books associated with him. Wow. Solomon. And in the end of his life, we're left to question, did he belong to God or not? And that's a pretty incredible thing. All that promise that was corrupted... It was corrupted because he didn't have a love for God's word. If you consider that, I'll challenge you with this, and, and we'll, we'll pray and, and move on to worship and close out tonight. But you read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There's a church, specifically I'd ask you to focus on, called Thyatira church of Thyatira is commended for their love and their service and their faithfulness and their patience. But they're challenged because they did not have a love 
for the truth and a love for people and not a love for the truth. The first church in the seven letters of seven churches, Ephesus, had, if you will, a, a love for the truth, the word of God. They held fast to the word of God, but they had lost their motivation, the love of God. They had lost. They wanted to hold to the truth without love. Truth without love is brutality. And love without truth is just sloppy. There's no value. We need truth and love. So the church at Thyatira was told to deal with it. Deal with this issue. You are tolerating things in your midst that you should not tolerate. Isn't that what Solomon did? What you tolerate, you encourage. And that's how the nation was divided. And that same message is then laid out for us thousand years later as John pens in the Revelation, the Apocalypsis, seven letters dictated by the lips of Jesus Christ to you and I. You know how the letter to the church of Thyatira ends? Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If there's anybody here without ears, let me know. Then that part is not for you. But if you have ears, God says, see the warning, heed the warning, and cling to the truth. The word keep, treasure, value what God instructs. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we could study, we could see <coughs> the life of Solomon and the pitfalls and the, and the dangers. Lord, And that it's not told us to, to make us afraid. It's told us to, to help us learn from his mistakes and to, and to make the right choices. To make the right choices that are going to honor you, Lord, and glorify you. And so as we, as we gather tonight, Lord, and as we close out in, in an attitude of worship and seek your face, may the cry of our heart be, Lord, how, how, how would you have me deal with this, so that I, what I've read? That we would remember that the Word of God is not a flashlight. It's not something to be used to show sin in others. It's something to be used to show me, my face in the mirror. And what I need to deal with. And what I need to, to see. And what I need to be submitted unto. And Lord, if you're laying out in anyone's heart tonight warnings of, of issues in their life that they need to cast aside. Lord, may they learn from the example of Solomon that a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom. May they learn from the example of David that a, that a heart focused on God makes you a man or woman after God's own heart. And Lord, that's our desire. Father, we want to walk with you. We want to treasure and value your word. We want to value that which you teach us. We want you, God, to be glorified in our midst. So we give you all the praise and the glory for what you've done here. And what you continue to do, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out in a word of worship. We invite you to worship with us. And afterward, we'll hang out for fellowship out in the foyer. Uh, probably only, because it's a little chilly outside. We'll see. But God bless you guys, and go in peace.
you turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you None like you Our God is greater Our God is stronger God you were higher than any you are healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. Into the darkness you shine, out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you None like you Our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other Our God is healer Awesome in power Our God God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, who can stand again? If our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, who can stand again? Who can stand again? God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God, our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. Lord, uh, we often forget what a great God we serve. Lord, we just thank you for this time together, Lord, that we could uh, worship you. Lord, that we can 
learn more of you. Lord, that we can look into your heart as we open scripture. Lord, we take a peek at, at the heart of God, how you call us over and over again back to you. Lord, go with us as we fellowship, Lord Jesus. In your precious holy name, amen.